The Second Choice by Theodore Dreiser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shirley, dear, you don't want the letters. There are only six of them anyhow, and think, they're all I have of you to cheer me on my travels. What good would they be to you? Little bits of notes telling me you're sure to meet me. But me? Think of me. If I send them to you, you'll tear them up. Whereas if you leave them with me, I can dab them with musk and ambergris and keep them in a little silver box, always beside me. Ah, Shirley, dear. You really don't know how sweet I think you are. How dear. There isn't a thing we have ever done together that isn't as clear in my mind as this great big skyscraper over the way here in Pittsburgh, and far more pleasing. In fact, my thoughts of you are the most precious and delicious things I have, Shirley. But I'm too young to marry now. You know that, Shirley, don't you? I haven't placed myself in any way yet, and I'm so restless that I don't know whether I ever will, really. Only yesterday, old Roxbaum, that's my new employer here, came to me and wanted to know if I would like an assistant overseership on one of his coffee plantations in Java. Said there would not be much money in it for a year or two, a bare living, but later there would be more. And I jumped at it. Just the thought of Java and going there did that. Although I knew I could make more staying right here. Can't you see how it is with me, Cheryl? I'm too restless and too young. I couldn't take care of you right, and you wouldn't like me after a while if I didn't. But ah, Shirley, sweet, I think the dearest things of you. There isn't an hour, it seems, but some little bit of you comes back. The dear, sweet bit. The night we sat on the grass in Tregore Park and counted the stars through the trees. That first evening at Sparrow's Point, when we missed the last train and had to walk to Langley. <laughs> Remember the tree toads, Shirl? And then that warm April Sunday in Athelby Woods. Ah, Cheryl, you don't want the six notes. Let me keep them. But think of me, will you, sweet? Wherever you go and whatever you do, I'll always think of you and wish that you had met a better, saner man than me and that I really could have married you and been all you wanted me to be. Bye-bye, sweet. I may start for Java within the month. If so, and you would want them, I'll send you some cards from there, if they have any. Your worthless Arthur. She sat and turned the letter in her hand, dumb with despair. It was the very last letter she would ever get from him, of that she was certain. He was gone now, once and for all. She had written him only this once, not making an open plea, but asking him to return her letters. And then there had come this tender but evasive reply, saying nothing of a possible return, but desiring to keep her letters for old time's sake, the happy hours they had spent together. The happy hours. Oh, yes, 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 the happy hours. In her memory now, as she sat here in her home after the day's work, meditating on all that had been in the few short months since he had come and gone, was a world of color and light, a color and a light so transfiguring as to seem celestial. But now... Alas, wholly dissipated. It had contained so much of all she had desired. Love, 
romance, amusement, laughter. He had been so gay and thoughtless or headstrong, so youthfully romantic and with such a love of play and change and to be saying and doing anything and everything. Arthur could dance in a gay way, whistle, sing after a fashion, play. He could play cards and do tricks, and he had such a superior air, so genial and brisk, with a kind of innate courtesy in it, and yet an intolerance for slowness and stodginess or anything dull or dingy such as characterized. But here her thoughts fled from him. She refused to think of anyone but Arthur. Sitting in her little bedroom now, off the parlor on the ground floor in her home in Bethune Street, and looking out over the Kessel's yard, and beyond that, there being no fences in Bethune Street, over the yards or lawns of the Pollards, Bakers, Criders, and others, she thought of how dull it must have all seemed to him, with his fine imaginative mind and experiences, his love of change and gaiety, his atmosphere of something better than she had ever known. How little she had been fitted, perhaps, by beauty or temperament to overcome this, the something, dullness in her work or her home, which possibly had driven him away. For although many had admired her to date, and she was young and pretty in her simple way, and constantly receiving suggestions that her beauty was disturbing to some, still he had not cared for her. He had gone. And now, as she meditated, it seemed that this scene, and all that it stood for, her parents, her work, her daily shuttling to and fro between the drug company for which she worked and this street and house was typical of her life and what she was destined to endure always. Some girls were so much more fortunate. They had fine clothes, fine homes, a world of pleasure and opportunity in which to move. They did not have to scrimp and save and work to pay their own way. And yet she had always been compelled to do it, but had never complained until now or until he came and after. Bethune Street, with its commonplace front yards and houses nearly all alike, and this house so like the others, room for room and porch for porch and her parents, too, really like all the others, had seemed good enough, quite satisfactory indeed, until then. But now, now, here in their kitchen was her mother, a thin, pale but kindly woman, peeling potatoes and washing lettuce, and putting a bit of steak or a chop or a piece of liver in a frying pan, day after day, morning and evening, month after month, year after year. And next door was Mrs. Kessel doing the same thing. And next door, Mrs. Crider. And next door, Mrs. Pollard. But until now, she had not thought it so bad. But now, now, oh, and on all the porches or lawns all along this street were the husbands and fathers, mostly middle-aged or old men like her father, reading their papers or cutting the grass before dinner, or smoking and meditating afterward. Her father was out in front now, a stooped, forbearing, meditative soul, who had rarely anything to say, leaving it all to his wife, her mother, but who was fond of her in his dull, quiet way. He was a pattern-maker by trade and had come into possession of this small, ordinary home via years of toil and saving, her mother helping him. They had no particular religion. As he often said, thinking reasonably human conduct a sufficient passport to heaven, 
but they had gone occasionally to the Methodist church over in Nicholas Street, and she had once joined it. But of late she had not gone, weaned away by the other commonplace pleasures of her world. And then, in the midst of it, the dull drift of things, as she now saw them to be, he had come. Arthur Bristow, young, energetic, good-looking, ambitious, dreamful, and instanter, and with her never knowing quite how, the whole thing had been changed. He had appeared so swiftly, out of nothing, as it were. Previous to him had been Barton Williams, stout, phlegmatic, good-natured, well-meaning, who was or had been before Arthur came, asking her to marry him, and whom she allowed to half-assume that she would. She had liked him, in a feeble, albeit, as she thought, tender way thinking him the kind, according to the logic of her neighborhood, who would make her a good husband, and until Arthur appeared on the scene had really intended to marry him. It was not really a love match, as she saw now, but she thought it was, which was much the same thing, perhaps. But as she now recalled, when Arthur came, how the scales fell from her eyes in a trice, as it were, nearly, there was a new heaven and a new earth. Arthur had arrived, and with him a sense of something different. Mabel Gove had asked her to come over to her house in Westley, the adjoining suburb, for Thanksgiving Eve and day, and without a thought of anything, and because Barton was busy handling a part of the work in the dispatcher's office of the Great Eastern and could not see her, she had gone, and then, to her surprise and strange, almost ineffable delight, the moment she had seen him, he was there, Arthur, with his slim, straight figure and dark hair and eyes, and clean-cut features, as clean and attractive as those of a coin. And as he had looked at her and smiled and narrated humorous bits of things that had happened to him, something had come over her, a spell. And after dinner, they had all gone round to Edith Barringer's to dance. And there, as she had danced with him somehow, without any seeming boldness on his part, he had taken possession of her, as it were, drawn her close and told her she had beautiful eyes and hair and such a delicately rounded chin and that he thought she danced gracefully and was sweet. She had nearly fainted with delight. Do you like me? He had asked in one place in the dance, and in spite of herself she had looked up into his eyes, and from that moment... She was almost mad over him, could think of nothing else but his hair and eyes and his smile and his graceful figure. Mabel Gove had seen it all, in spite of her determination that no one should, and on their going to bed later, back at Mabel's home, she had whispered, <laughs> Shirley, I saw. You like Arthur, don't you? I think he's very nice, Shirley recalled replying, for Mabel knew of her affair with Barton and liked him. But I'm not crazy over him. And for this bit of treason she had sighed in her dreams nearly all night. And the next day, true to her request and the promise made by him, Arthur had called again at Mabel's to take her and Mabel to a movie which was not so far away, and from there they had gone to an ice-cream parlor. And during it all, when Mabel was not looking, he had squeezed her arm and hand and kissed her neck, and she had held her breath, and her heart had seemed to stop. And now you're going to let me come out to your place to see you, aren't you? He had whispered. And she had replied, Wednesday evening, 
and then written the address on a little piece of paper and given it to him. But now it was all gone, gone. This house, which now looked so dreary, how romantic it had seemed that first night he called. The front room, with its commonplace furniture, and later in the spring the veranda with its vines just sprouting and the moon in may oh the moon in may and june and july when he was here how she had lied to barton to make evenings for arthur and occasionally to arthur to keep him from contact with barton she had not even mentioned barton to arthur because because well, because Arthur was so much better, and somehow she admitted it to herself now, she had not been sure that Arthur would care for her long, if at all. And then, well, and then, to be quite frank, Barton might be good enough. She did not exactly hate him because she had found Arthur, not at all. She still liked him in a way. He was so kind and faithful, so very dull and straightforward and thoughtful of her, which Arthur was certainly not. Before Arthur had appeared, as she well remembered, Barton had seemed to be plenty good enough. In fact, all that she desired in a pleasant, companionable way, calling for her, taking her places, bringing her flowers and candy, which Arthur rarely did, and for that if nothing more, she could not help continuing to like him and to feel sorry for him. And besides, as she had admitted to herself before, if Arthur left her, weren't his parents better off than hers? And hadn't he a good position for such a man as he? $150 a month and the certainty of more later on. A little while before meeting Arthur, she had thought this very good. Enough for two to live on at least. And she had thought some of trying it at some time or other. But now, now. And that first night he had called, how well she remembered it, how it had transfigured the parlor next this in which she was now filling it with something it had never had before. And the porch outside, too, for that matter, with its gaunt, leafless vine, and this street, too, even. Dull, commonplace Bethune Street. There had been a flurry of snow during the afternoon while she was working at the store, and the ground was white with it. All the neighboring homes seemed to look sweeter and happier and more inviting than ever they had as she came past them, with their lights peeping from under curtains and drawn shades. She had hurried into hers and lighted the big red-shaded parlor lamp, her one artistic treasure, as she thought, and put it near the piano, between it and the window, and arranged the chairs, and then bustled to the task of making herself as pleasing as she might. For him, she had gotten out her one best filmy house dress and done up her hair in the fashion she thought most becoming and that he had not seen before, and powdered her cheeks and nose and darkened her eyelashes as some of the girls at the store did, and put on her new gray satin slippers, and then being so arrayed, waited nervously, unable to eat anything or to think of anything but him. And at last... Just when she had begun to think he might not be coming, he had appeared with that arch smile and a, Hello! It's here you live, is it? I was wondering. George, but you're twice as sweet as I thought you were, aren't you? And then, in the little entryway behind the closed door, he had held her and kissed her on the mouth a dozen times while she pretended to push against his coat and struggle and say that her parents might hear. And, oh, <laughs> the room afterward, with him in it in the red glow of the lamp. 
and with his pale handsome face made handsomer thereby as she thought he had made her sit near him and had held her hands and told her about his work and his dreams all that he expected to do in the future and then she had found herself wishing intensely to share just such a life his life anything that he might wish to do only she kept wondering with a slight pain whether he would want her to he was so young dreamful ambitious much younger and more dreamful than herself although in reality he was several years older and then followed that glorious period from december to this late september in which everything which was worth happening in love had happened oh those wondrous days the following spring when with the first burst of buds and leaves he had taken her one sunday to athelby where all the great woods were and they had hunted spring beauties in the grass and sat on a slope and looked at the river below and watched some boys fixing up a sailboat and setting forth in it quite as she wished she and arthur might be doing going somewhere together far far away from all the commonplace things and life and then he had slipped his arm about her and kissed her cheek and neck and tweaked her ear and smoothed her hair and ah there on the grass with the spring flowers about her and a canopy of small green leaves above the perfection of love had come love so wonderful that the mere thought of it made her eyes brim now and then had been days saturday afternoons and sundays at athelby and sparrows point where the great beach was and in lovely tregore park a mile or two from her home where they could go of an evening and sit in or near the pavilion and have ice cream and dance or watch the dancers oh the stars the winds the summer breath of those days ah me <laughs> ah me naturally her parents had wondered from the first about her and arthur and her and barton since barton had already assumed a proprietary interest in her and she had seemed to like him but then she was an only child and a pet and used to presuming on that and they could not think of saying anything to her after all she was young and pretty and was entitled to change her mind only only she had had to indulge in a career of lying and subterfuge in connection with barton since arthur was headstrong and wanted every evening that he chose to call for her at the store and keep her downtown to dinner and to show arthur had never been like barton shy phlegmatic obedient waiting long and patiently for each little favor but instead masterful and eager rifling her of kisses and caresses and every delight of love and teasing and playing with her as a cat would a mouse she could never resist him he demanded of her her time and her affection without let or hindrance he was not exactly selfish or cruel as some might have been but gay and unthinking at times unconsciously so and yet loving and tender at others nearly always so but always he would talk of things in the future as if they really did not include her and this troubled her greatly of places he might go things he might do which somehow he seemed to think or assume that she could not or would not do with him he was always going to go to australia sometime he thought in a business way or to south africa or possibly to india he never seemed to have any fixed clear future for himself in mind 
a dreadful sense of helplessness and of impending disaster came over her at these times of being involved in some predicament over which she had no control and which would lead her on to some sad end arthur although plainly in love as she thought and apparently delighted with her might not always love her she began timidly at first and always for that matter to ask him pretty seeking questions about himself and her whether their future was certain to be together whether he really wanted her loved her whether he might not want to marry someone else or just her and whether she wouldn't look nice in a pearl satin wedding dress with a long creamy veil and satin slippers and a bouquet of bridal wreath she had been so slowly and surely saving to that end even before he came in connection with barton only after he came all thought of the import of it had been transferred to him but now also she was beginning to ask herself sadly would it ever be would it ever be he was so airy so inconsequential so ready to say yes yes and sure sure that's right yes indeedy you bet say kitty but you'll look sweet but somehow it had always seemed as if this whole thing were a glorious interlude and that it could not last arthur was too gay and ethereal and too little settled in his own mind his ideas of travel and living in different cities finally winding up in new york or san francisco but never with her exactly until she asked him was too ominous although he always reassured her gaily of course of course but somehow she could never believe it really and it made her intensely sad at times horribly gloomy so often she wanted to cry and she could scarcely tell why and then because of her intense affection for him she had finally quarreled with barton or nearly that if one could say that one ever really quarreled with him it had been because of a certain thursday evening a few weeks before about which she had disappointed him in a fit of generosity knowing that arthur was coming wednesday and because barton had stopped in at the store to see her she had told him that he might come having regretted it afterwards so enamored was she of arthur and then when wednesday came arthur had changed his mind telling her he would come friday instead but on thursday evening he had stopped in at the store and asked her to go to sparrows point with the result that she had no time to notify barton he'd gone to the house and sat with her parents until ten thirty and then a few days later although she had written him offering an excuse had called at the store to complain slightly do you think you did just right shirley you might have sent word mightn't you who was it the new fellow you won't tell me about shirley flared on the instant supposing it was what's it to you i don't belong to you yet do i i told you there wasn't anyone and i wish you'd let me alone about that i couldn't help it last thursday that's all and i don't want you to be fussing with me that's all if you don't want to you needn't come any more anyhow don't say that surly pleaded barton you don't mean that i won't bother you though if you don't want me any more and because shirley sulked not knowing what else to do he had gone and she had not seen him since and then some time later when she had thus broken with barton avoiding the railway station where he worked arthur had failed to come at his appointed time 
sending no word until the next day when a note came to the store saying that he had been out of town for his firm over sunday and had not been able to notify her but that he would call tuesday it was an awful blow at the time i surely had a vision of what was to follow it seemed for the moment as if the whole world had suddenly been reduced to ashes there was nothing but black charred cinders anywhere she felt that about all life yet it all came to her clearly then that this was but the beginning of just such days and just such excuses and that soon soon he would come no more he was beginning to be tired of her and soon he would not even make excuses she felt it and it froze and terrified her and then soon after the indifference which she feared did follow almost created by her own thoughts as it were first it was a meeting he had to attend somewhere one wednesday night when he was to have come for her and then he was going out of town again over a sunday and then he was going away for a whole week it was absolutely unavoidable, he said. His commercial duties were increasing, and once he had casually remarked that nothing could stand in the way where she was concerned, never. She did not think of reproaching him with this. She was too proud. If he was going, he must go. She would not be willing to say to herself that she had ever attempted to hold any man. But just the same she was agonized by the thought when he was with her he seemed tender enough only at times his eyes wandered and he seemed slightly bored other girls particularly pretty ones seemed to interest him as much as she did and the agony of the long days when he did not come any more for a week or two at a time the waiting the brooding, the wondering at the store and here in her home. In the former place, making mistakes at times because she could not get her mind off him and being reminded of them, and here at her own home at nights, being so absent-minded that her parents remarked on it. She felt sure that her parents must be noticing that Arthur was not coming any more, or as much as he had, for she pretended to be going out with him, going to Mabel Gove's instead, and that Barton had deserted her too, he having been driven off by her indifference, never to come any more, perhaps, unless she sought him out. And then it was that the thought of saving her own face by taking up with Barton once more occurred to her, of using him and his affections and faithfulness and dullness, if you will, to cover up her own dilemma. Only, this ruse was not to be tried until she had written Arthur this one letter, a pretext merely to see if there was a single ray of hope, a letter to be written in a gentle enough way, and asking for the return of the few notes she had written him. She had not seen him now in nearly a month, and the last time she had, he had said he might soon be compelled to leave her a while, to go to Pittsburgh to work. And it was his reply to this that she now held in her hand. From Pittsburgh. It was frightful. The future without him. But Barton would never know really what had transpired if she went back to him. In spite of all her delicious hours with Arthur, she could call him back. She felt sure. She had never really entirely dropped him, and he knew it. He had bored her dreadfully on occasion, arriving on off days when Arthur was not about, with flowers or candy or both, and sitting on the porch steps and talking of the railroad business and of the whereabouts and doings of some of their old friends. It was shameful, she had thought at times, to see a man so patient, so hopeful, so good-natured as Barton, deceived in this way, 
and by her who was so miserable over another her parents must see and know she had thought at these times but still what else was she to do i'm a bad girl she kept telling herself i'm all wrong what right have i to offer barton what is left but still somehow she realized that barton if she chose to favor him would only be too grateful for even the leavings of others where she was concerned and that even yet if she but deigned to crook a finger she could have him he was so simple so good-natured so stolid and matter-of-fact so different to arthur whom she could not help smiling at the thought of it she was loving now about as barton loved her slavishly hopelessly and then as the days passed and arthur did not write any more just this one brief note she at first grieved horribly and then in a fit of numb despair attempted bravely enough from one point of view to adjust herself to the new situation why should she despair why die of agony where there were plenty who would still sigh for her barton among others she was young and pretty very many told her so she could if she chose achieve a vivacity which she did not feel why should she brook this unkindness without a thought of retaliation why shouldn't she enter upon a gay and heartless career indulging in a dozen flirtations at once dancing and killing all thoughts of arthur in a round of frivolities there were many who beckoned to her she stood at her counter in the drugstore on many a day and brooded over this but at the thought of which one to begin with she faltered after her late love all were so tame for the present anyhow and then and then always there was barton the humble or faithful to whom she had been so unkind and whom she had used and whom she still really liked so often self-reproaching thoughts in connection with him crept over her he must have known must have seen how badly she was using him all this while and yet he had not failed to come and come until she had actually quarreled with him and anyone would have seen that it was literally hopeless she could not help remembering especially now in her pain that he adored her he was not calling on her now at all by her indifference she had finally driven him away but a word a word she waited for days weeks hoping against hope and then the office of barton superior in the great eastern terminal had always made him an easy object for her blandishments coming and going as she frequently did via this very station he was in the office of the assistant train dispatcher on the ground floor where passing to and from the local which at times was quicker than a street car she could easily see him by peering in only she had carefully avoided him for nearly a year if she chose now and would call for a message blank at the adjacent telegraph window which was a part of his room and raised her voice as she often had in the past he could scarcely fail to hear if he did not see her and if he did he would rise and come over of that she was sure for he never could resist her it had been a while of hers in the old days to do this or to make her presence felt by idling outside after a month of brooding she felt that she must act her position as a deserted girl was too much she could not stand it any longer really the eyes of her mother for one it was six fifteen one evening when coming out of the store in which she worked she turned her step disconsolately homeward her heart was heavy her face rather pale and drawn 
She had stopped in the store's retiring room before coming out to add to her charms as much as possible by a little powder and rouge and to smooth her hair. It would not take much to reallure her former sweetheart, she felt sure. And yet it might not be so easy after all. Suppose he had found another. But she could not believe that. It had scarcely been long enough since he had last attempted to see her and he was really so very, very fond of her, and so faithful. He was too slow and certain in his choosing. He had been so with her. Still, who knows? With this thought, she went forward in the evening, feeling for the first time the shame and pain that comes of deception. The agony of having to relinquish an ideal and the feeling of despair that comes to those who find themselves in the position of suppliance, stooping to something which in better days and better fortune they would not know. Arthur was the cause of this. When she reached the station, the crowd that usually filled it at this hour was swarming. There were so many pairs like Arthur and herself laughing and hurrying away or so she felt, first glancing in the small mirror of the weighing scale to see if she were still of her former charm. She stopped thoughtfully at a little flower stand which stood outside and for a few pennies purchased a tiny bunch of violets. She then went inside and stood near the window, peering first furtively to see if he were present. He was. Bent over his work, a green shade over his eyes. She could see his stolid, genial figure at a table. Stepping back a moment to ponder, she finally went forward and, in a clear voice, asked, May I have a blank, please? The infatuation of the discarded Barton was such that it brought him instantly to his feet. In his stodgy, stocky way he rose, his eyes glowing with a friendly hope, his mouth wreathed in smiles, and came over. At the sight of her pale but pretty, paler and prettier, really, than he had ever seen her, he thrilled dumbly. "'How are you, Shirley?' he said sweetly, as he drew near, his eyes searching her face hopefully. He had not seen her for so long that he was intensely hungry, and her paler beauty appealed to him more than ever. Why wouldn't she have him, he was asking himself. Why wouldn't his persistent love yet win her? Perhaps it might. I haven't seen you in a month of Sundays, it seems. How are the folks? They're all right, Bart, she smiled archly. And so am I. How have you been? It has been a long time since I've seen you. I've been wondering how you were. Have you been all right? I was just going to send a message. As he had approached, Shirley had pretended at first not to see him, a moment later to affect surprise, although she was really suppressing a heavy sigh. The sight of him, after Arthur, was not reassuring. Could she really interest herself in him any more? Could she? Sure, sure, he replied genially. I'm always all right. You couldn't kill me, you know. Not going away, are you, Cheryl? He queried interestedly. No, I'm just telegraphing Mabel. She promised to meet me tomorrow, and I want to be sure she will. You don't come past here as often as you did, Shirley, he complained tenderly. At least I don't seem to see you so often, he added with a smile. It isn't anything I have done, is it? He queried, and then, when she protested quickly, added, What's the trouble, Shirl? Haven't been sick, have you? She affected all her old gaiety and ease, feeling as though she would like to cry. Oh, no, she returned. 
I've been all right. I've been going through the other door, I suppose, or coming in and going out on the Langdon Avenue car. This was true, because she had been wanting to avoid him. I've been in such a hurry most nights that I haven't had time to stop, Bart. You know how late the store keeps us at times. He remembered, too, that in the old days she had made time to stop or meet him occasionally. Yes, I know, he said tactfully, but you haven't been to any of our old card parties either of late, have you? Have you? At least I haven't seen you. I've gone to two or three, thinking you might be there. That was another thing Arthur had done, broken up her interest in these old store and neighborhood parties and a banjo and mandolin club to which she had once belonged. They had all seemed so pleasing and amusing in the old days. But now, in those days, Bart had been her usual companion when his work permitted. No, she replied evasively, but with a forced air of pleasant remembrance. I have often thought of how much fun we had at those, though. It was a shame to drop them. You haven't seen Harry Stull or Trina Task recently, have you? She inquired, more to be saying something than for any interest she felt. He shook his head negatively, then added, Yes, uh, I did, too. Here in the waiting room a few nights ago, they were coming downtown to a theater, I suppose. His face fell slightly as he recalled how it had been their custom to do this and what their one quarrel had been about. Shirley noticed it. She felt the least bit sorry for him, but much more for herself, coming back disconsolately to all this. Well, you're looking as pretty as ever, Shirley, he continued, noting that she had not written the telegram and that there was something wistful in her glance. Prettier, I think. And she smiled sadly. Every word that she tolerated from him was as so much gold to him, so much of dead ashes to her. You wouldn't like to come down some evening this week and see the mousetrap, would you? We haven't been to a theater together, and I don't know when. His eyes sought hers in a hopeful, dog-like way. So, she could have him again. That was the pity of it. To have what she really did not want, did not care for. At the least nod now he would come. And this very devotion made it all but worthless and so sad. She ought to marry him now for certain, if she began in this way and could in a month's time if she chose, but oh, oh, could she? For the moment she decided that she could not, would not, if he had only repulsed her, told her to go, ignored her. But no, it was her fate to be loved by him in this moving, pleading way, and hers not to love him as she wished to love, to be loved. Plainly, he needed someone like her, whereas she, she, she turned a little sick, a sense of the sacrilege of gaiety at this time creeping into her voice and exclaimed, No, no. Then seeing his face change, a heavy sadness come over it. Not this week, anyhow. I mean, not so soon, she had almost said. I have several engagements this week, and I'm not feeling well. But seeing his face change and the thought of her own state returning, you might come out to the house some evening instead, and then we can go some other time. His face brightened intensely. It was wonderful how he longed to be with her, how the least favor from her comforted and lifted him up. She could see also now, however, how little it meant to her, how little it could ever mean, 
even if to him it was heaven. The old relationship would have to be resumed in toto once and for all. But did she want it that way now that she was feeling so miserable about this other affair? As she meditated, these various moods racing to and fro in her mind, Barton seemed to notice. And now it occurred to him that perhaps he had not pursued her enough, was too easily put off. She probably did like him yet. This evening, her present visit seemed to prove it. Sure, sure, he agreed. I'd like that. I'll come out Sunday, if you say. We can go any time to the play. I'm sorry, Shirley, if you're not feeling well. I've thought of you a lot these days. I'll come out Wednesday, if you don't mind. She smiled a wan smile. It was all so much easier than she had expected, her triumph, and so ashen-like in consequence, a flavor of Dead Sea fruit and defeat about it all, that it was pathetic. How could she, after Arthur? How could he, really? Make it Sunday? She pleaded, naming the farthest day off, and then hurried out. Her faithful lover gazed after her, while she suffered an intense nausea. To think, to think, it should all be coming to this. She had not used her telegraph blank, and now had forgotten all about it. It was not the simple trickery that discouraged her, but her own future, which could find no better outlet than this, could not rise above it, apparently, or that she had no heart to make it rise above it. Why couldn't she interest herself in someone different to Barton? Why did she have to return to him? Why not wait and meet some other, ignore him as before? But no, no, nothing mattered now. No one. It might as well be Barton really as anyone. And she would at least make him happy, and at the same time solve her own problem. She went out into the train shed and climbed into her train. Slowly, after the usual pushing and jostling of a crowd, it drew out toward Latonia, that suburban region in which her home lay. As she rode, she thought, What have I just done? What am I doing? She kept asking herself as the clacking wheels on the rails fell into a rhythmic dance, and the houses of the brown, dry, endless city fled past in a maze, severing myself decisively from the past, the happy past. For, supposing once I'm married, Arthur should return and want me again. Suppose suppose below at one place under a shed were some market gardeners disposing of the last remnants of their day's wares a sickly dull life she thought here was rutgers avenue with its line of red street cars many wagons and tracks and counter streams of automobiles how often she had passed it morning and evening in a shuttle-like way and how often would unless she got married. And here, now, was the river flowing smoothly between its banks lined with coal pockets and wharves, away, away to the huge deep sea which she and Arthur had enjoyed so much. Oh, to be in a small boat and drift out, out into the endless, restless, pathless deep. Somehow the sight of this water, tonight and every night, brought back those evenings in the open with Arthur at Sparrow's Point, the long line of dancers in Eckert's Pavilion, the woods at Athelby, the park, with the dancers in the pavilion. She choked back a sob. Once Arthur had come this way with her on just such an evening as this, pressing her hand and saying how wonderful she was. Oh, Arthur, Arthur, 
and now Barton was to take his old place again, forever, no doubt. She could not trifle with her life any longer in this foolish way, or his. What was the use? But think of it. Yes, it must be. Forever now, she told herself. She must marry. Time would be slipping by, and she would become too old. It was her only future, marriage. It was the only future she had ever contemplated, really, a home, children, the love of some man whom she could love as she loved Arthur. Ah, what a happy home that would have been for her. But now, now. But there must be no turning back now, either. There was no other way. If Arthur ever came back, <laughs> but fear not, he wouldn't. She had risked so much and lost, lost him. Her little venture into true love had been a failure. Before Arthur had come, all had been well enough. Barton, stout and simple and frank and direct, had in some way, how she could scarcely realize now, offered sufficient of a future. But now, now, he had enough money, she knew, to build a cottage for the two of them. He had told her so. He would do his best always to make her happy. She was sure of that. They could live in about the same state her parents were living in, or a little better, not much, and would never want. No doubt there would be children, because he craved them, several of them, and that would take up her time, long years of it. The sad gray years. But then Arthur, whose children she would have thrilled to bear, would be no more. A mere memory. Think of that. And Barton, the dull, the commonplace, would have achieved his finest dream. And why? Because love was a failure for her. That was why, and in her life there could be no more true love. She would never love anyone again as she had Arthur. It could not be. She was sure of it. He was too fascinating, too wonderful, always, always, wherever she might be. Whoever she might marry, he would be coming back, intruding between her and any possible love. Receiving any possible kiss, it would be Arthur she would be loving or kissing. She dabbed at her eyes with a tiny handkerchief, turned her face close to the window and stared out, and then as the environs of Latonia came into view, wondered, so deep is romance. <sighs> what if Arthur should come back at some time? Or now? Supposing he should be here at the station now? Accidentally? Or on purpose to welcome her? To soothe her weary heart? He had met her here before. How she would fly to him, lay her head on his shoulder, forget forever that Barton ever was, that they had ever separated for an hour. Oh, Arthur, Arthur! No, no. Here was Latonia. Here the viaduct over her train. The long business street and the cars marked Center and Langdon Avenue. Running back into the great city. A few blocks away in tree-shaded Bethune Street, duller and plainer than ever, was her parents' cottage and the routine of that old life which was now, she felt, more fully fastened upon her than ever before. The lawnmowers, the lawns, the front porches, all alike. Now would come the going to and fro of Barton to business as her father and she now went to business. Her keeping house, cooking, washing, ironing, sewing for Barton as her mother now did these things for her father and herself. And she would not be in love, really, as she wanted to be. Oh, 
dreadful. She could never escape it, really. Now that she could endure it less, scarcely for another hour. And yet she must, must, for the sake of... For the sake of... She closed her eyes and dreamed. She walked up the street under the trees, past the houses and lawns all alike to her own, and found her father on their veranda, reading the evening paper. She sighed at the sight. "'Back, daughter?' he called pleasantly. "'Yes.' "'Your mother's wondering if you would like steak or liver for dinner. Better tell her.' "'Oh, it doesn't matter.' She hurried into her bedroom, threw down her hat and gloves, and herself on the bed to rest silently, and groaned in her soul. To think that it had all come to this, never to see him any more, to see only Barton, and marry him, and live in such a street, have four or five children, forget all her youthful companionships, and all to save her face before her parents and her future. Why must it be? Should it be really? She choked and stifled. After a little time, her mother, hearing her come in, came to the door. Thin, practical, affectionate, conventional. What's wrong, honey? Aren't you feeling well tonight? Have you a headache? Let me feel. Her thin, cool fingers crept over her temples and hair. She suggested something to eat or a headache powder right away. I'm all right, mother. I'm just not feeling well now. Don't bother. I'll get up soon. Please don't. Would you rather have liver or steak tonight, dear? Oh, anything. N nothing. Please don't bother. Steak will do. Anything. If only she could get rid of her and be at rest. Her mother looked at her and shook her head sympathetically, then retreated quietly, saying no more. Lying so, she thought and thought, grinding, destroying thoughts about the beauty of the past, the darkness of the future. Until able to endure them no longer, she got up and, looking distractedly out of the window into the yard in the house next door, stared at her future fixedly. What should she do? What should she really do? There was Mrs. Kessel in her kitchen, getting her dinner as usual, just as her own mother was now, and Mr. Kessel out on the front porch in his shirt-sleeves reading the evening paper. Beyond was Mr. Pollard in his yard, cutting the grass. All along Bethune Street were such houses and such people, simple, commonplace souls all, clerks, managers, fairly successful craftsmen, like her father and Barton, excellent in their way, but not like Arthur the Beloved, the Lost. And here was she, perforce, or by decision of necessity, soon to be one of them in some such street as this no doubt forever and for the moment it choked and stifled her she decided that she would not no 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 there must be some other way many ways she did not have to do this unless she really wished to would not only then going to the mirror she looked at her face and smoothed her hair but what's the use she asked of herself wearily and resignedly after a time why should i cry why shouldn't i marry barton i don't amount to anything anyhow arthur wouldn't have me i wanted him and i am compelled to take someone else or no one what difference does it really make who my dreams are too high, that's all. I wanted Arthur, and he wouldn't have me. I don't want Barton, and he crawls at my feet. I'm a failure. 
that's what's the matter with me. And then, turning up her sleeves and removing a fichu, which stood out too prominently from her breast, she went into the kitchen and, looking about for an apron, observed, Can't I help? Where's the tablecloth? And finding it among napkins and silverware in a drawer in the adjoining room, proceeded to set the table. End of The Second Choice by Theodore Dreiser Read by Mystery Teacher Michael Everding